What am I but man? <laughs> I'm Jean am Valjean, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> you are Jean Valjean. Oh no, I am. <laughs> and I am Becky Sharp. <laughs> I like it. From Vanity Fair. Okay. Yes. Yeah. We're not talking about Becky Sharp or Vanity mm. Fair or no. Les Rap. No. Right now. We're going to talk about well, a play. We're going to talk about a play. That, play. Like, I yep. don't know about you, but when I was researching it, it's it's influenced so many things. Oh, yeah. Just well, like, by the oh. way, by the way, this is a uh, this is pop DNA. Just Hello. in case. We Hi. had to trick me into it because I'm bad at int- at the beginning. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, much ado about nothing. It has influenced a lot for sure. Yeah, I think and probably so, more than we realize. Well, right, because there's so many things that we take for granted now, like witty repartee mm-hmm. and back and forth, and um, I think that was a pretty. N- not a brand new thing for much when much ado came out, but certainly mm. like new-ish, you know. Yeah, it's one of my favorite plays. I know that. Um, yeah, it's it's in my top three for sure. What are the other two? Um, Twelfth Night. Oh And yeah. the the Scottish play Macbeth. Oh yes, don't say its name. <laughs> well, we're not in a theater, so it's fine. Oh, so it'd be fine. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's only like if you're in a theater and you're like currently involved in a production of Macbeth, that's okay. like the only time that it's cursed. It's fine. But isn't all the world a stage? <laughs> the men and women, merely players. <laughs> so for um, for listeners who don't Oh my gosh, know, we're such nerds. <laughs> we're such, we are so nerdy for Shakespeare, but... For everyone who oh maybe gosh. doesn't know, um, Much Ado About Nothing um, is a comedy in five acts by William Shakespeare, and it is believed that the comedy was written somewhere between 1598 and 1599, and then originally printed in 1600, um, but Rhonda's going to get to it, I think, in a minute, but oh, yeah. all of the, the dates and the timelines are a little bit up to debate. Oh, yeah. Um, the 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 record keeping at the time was maybe not so fastidious. Not great. Yeah, yeah. Um, they had other things to deal with, like their general oh, health yeah, and well-being. Like the plague. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, so do we. So yeah, you <laughs> we know have a plague what? right now. <laughs> As I was saying that, I was like, oh shoot! <laughs> I understand my... Shakespeare now. <laughs> Are my you know they had to close get so sloppy. <laughs> They had to close all the theaters in London, like in like the early 1590s, because they had an outbreak of the plague. And so like everything shut down, like all the theaters, all the yeah, all the like inns and taverns, they had to shut everything down to like stop the spread of the plague. I'm like, oh my gosh, I understand Shakespeare now. Like I get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Anyway. Um, so this is one of his relative, like not his first work or anything, but one of his first kind of group of works that was included in Shakespeare's first folio, which just means it was, um, in, it was just written. The first in a collection. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the first performance of Much Ado was in London, um, by 
a very famous acting troupe called the Lord Chamberlain's Men, um, which... And that was sh- the troupe that Shakespeare led. Yeah, which was his yeah. his little his little guys. Um, so, Rhonda, what was your first experience mm-hmm. with this? Well, it was definitely the... Uh, the film version starring Emma Thompson. Oh. My hero. Um Yeah, and yeah, and it's it's I was just reflecting on this earlier today because I, I watched it earlier today and I was like, oh, I love the the Emma Thompson much do about nothing. And like I call it the Emma Thompson one because it is. Uh-huh. Like Brana directed it, but it's the Emma Thompson version. Right. Like, <laughs> That's that. Um, but yeah, I think I, I watched, so it came out in like the early 90s. Okay. But I don't think I, I don't think I saw it when it came out, but I saw it pretty young. I think I was maybe like uh, eight or 10-ish when I saw it. Nice. And like, I did not understand all the words, Sure. but I like, I, I, I understood like the the spirit of it I guess like the wittiness and the and the like you know it's like filmed in the Italian countryside and so everything's all bright and like pretty and and that was like the 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 aesthetic sense that I got from it um but yeah I really uh I really liked it it's probably I it might be the first uh, Shakespeare play that I saw any performance of, whether film or stage cool. performance. So yeah, so that's interesting. Um, but what about you? Well, I think I mentioned it on the Hamlet episode. Um, a shameless plug for you to go back and listen. But um, Ooh, go listen. My mom. I was kind of raised as like a Shakespeare baby. Like my mom would just uh-huh. quote it to me and read it to me and just have random Shakespeare around um but I don't think that I read much ado until high school but I loved it like instantly you know the Beatrice Mm -hmm. character is pretty amazing um so yeah I'm gonna talk about her yeah I think I think I had an acting teacher tell me that I couldn't ever play her because I wasn't strong enough and I was like is that not acting so (laughs) so I some some bizarre memories of being kind of, I guess, mansplained too about how I couldn't possibly understand um, Beatrice. Another when, woman, right? When in fact someone was just <laughs> labeling me instead. Oh, it was a whole thing. Um, so yeah, I think um, I've just always been a fan of the Shakespeare. 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 Oh, Romeo, blah, blah, blah. Romeo. (laughs) Yes. Well, and then we also, as a podcast, have somewhat of a history with the play. We do. Um, We do. We have discussed it in at least a couple of other episodes. Yeah. Um, We have performed (laughs) scenes from it for Patreon. We sure have. Um, yeah, that's available on our Patreon right now. Um, yeah, so I, I feel like it's, uh, 
you know, shakes like the the Shakespeare portrait is kind of like our mascot. Yeah, I feel like Much Ado is very much a part of the fabric of this show. I of agree this, of this podcast. So yeah. this is a good. This is a good. This is going to be good. I'm I'm excited to talk about this. Me too. We have yeah. so many notes. <laughs> we have so many notes. Um, <laughs> but speaking of which, um, so in our we're probably going to be referring back to our Hamlet episode at least a few more times, just yeah. because same writer things are going to overlap a little bit. But um, we talked about a pretty a pretty good overview of uh, of Shakespeare's biography in that episode. So instead of just rehashing that, um, I thought that it would be fun to just talk about some of like the lesser known things about Shakespeare and some of the conspiracy theories about yeah. Shakespeare. <laughs> I love this. Okay. So... I found a good list of kind of lesser known facts about Shakespeare um, from the History Channel's website. So um, that we will link. Um, But I just picked out a couple of the things that I found the most interesting. So Shakespeare's parents were probably illiterate. And his children almost certainly were illiterate. Um. Which these facts will come into play in a later conspiracy theory. So hang on to that. Hang on to that thought. Um, So Shakespeare attended um, the school in Stratford where, you know, he studied reading and writing and Latin. But his wife and his two children who who lived into adulthood um, did not attend school at all. And so they probably could not you know read and write at least not at the level that Shakespeare could um but uh his we do have a signature from his daughter Susanna so she could at least write her name okay but yeah but that's just you know really interesting that we have this famous author and everyone around him wouldn't have been able to read what he wrote which I find kind of sad um so we also have talked a little bit about um, his lost years, uh-huh. Shakespeare's lost years between 1585 and 1592. There's no record of where he was or what he was doing. Oh. Um, so, yeah. So his um, his twins, um, Hamnet and Judith, were born in 1585. So we have that record. But then there's nothing between then and 1592 when he pops up in London. Okay. In this acting company. So we don't know where he was for those, what, seven years. Huh. Um, who knows what he was doing? Any theories? I don't know. I think he was probably the... taking a social media <laughs> detox. Um, probably. Probably, <laughs> probably couldn't quite handle it. For seven it. years? <laughs> he like, hmm... Yeah, or maybe he like trained yeah. uh, trained as a Jedi and like couldn't possibly. That would be a a good use of his time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> leading theories are that he worked as a school teacher. 
okay. that he studied law or that he traveled across Europe, which I think the traveling across Europe, which like it kind of makes sense in a way because in a lot of his plays, he uses words from other European languages like French and Italian, which he would not have learned French or Italian in the school in Stratford. So it makes sense that he, maybe he traveled in France, maybe he traveled in Italy and he picked up a few words, but where would he have gotten the means to travel? Yeah. An interesting question. Yeah. Um, Okay. This one I found really interesting. We probably don't spell Shakespeare's name correctly. Oh. But he probably didn't either. (laughs) (laughs) So so there's like uh, records from his time spell the name Shakespeare in like 80 different ways. (laughs) And we don't know if they're all referring to like if they're all supposed to be the same name. Yeah. So again, like this, like, so their record keeping was not as exacting as, you know, we're used to now for one thing. And also the language was still evolving. So like the um, kind of like the, the rules or the, the, um, the grammar of the English language was still being standardized so you would see words and names spelled differently in different things like it wasn't a standard spelling for everything so we um we see the spelling um s-h-a-p-p-e-r-e okay to s-h-a-x-b-e-r-d interesting shakespeard yeah very interesting uh, but one interesting thing, however it's spelled, the name Shakespeare is thought to derive from the old English words shaken to brandish and spear. So like to shake a spear or to hold a spear. Yeah. Um, and probably referred to an argumentative person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, okay. Two more. So and these are these are where it gets into a little bit more of like conspiracy-ish. I guess. Um, so the epitaph um, on Shakespeare's grave curses grave robbers. Wow. <laughs> yeah, this one's fun. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> So he died um, in 1616, um, mysteriously. We don't know what actually killed him, Um, which is odd in itself. Yeah. But the, like, theory or the legend, I suppose, is that he actually wrote his own epitaph to be put on his tomb. (laughs) And... Yes. And it was intended to like warn away grave robbers because like grave robberies were pretty common in um, England at this time. So the verse reads, good friend, for Jesus sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones and cursed be he that moves my bones. (laughs) 
and <laughs> yeah and uh his remains have yet to be disturbed so it worked we all fell for it yeah that yeah great um <laughs> all right so the last one i know the one that everyone has been waiting for you you've probably heard of this uh-huh but we're just going to talk about it just a little bit because <laughs> like even though i don't think it's true i think it's fascinating yeah. so this is the idea the theory that actually started around like the late 19th century um the theory that the person known to the historical record as William Shakespeare did not actually write the works that are attributed to William Shakespeare. Right. Right. So the thinking being that a, you know, poor common person with no, you know, with like very little education to speak of, how could he have written these great works of literature? Um, that's kind of the question that it's asking. So like, it must have been someone else, you know, um, a lot of uh, the proposed candidates are other writers at the time. So like Edmund Spencer, Christopher Marlowe, um, yeah. Francis Bacon, actually um, Queen Elizabeth the first is one of the proposed um, <laughs> candidates as Aww. like the real author of Shakespeare's works. Um so, and this is really interesting uh, because, um, like I said, like this theory started to kind of um, take hold in the late 19th century, which is when um, we saw like a surge in the popularity of Shakespeare's works. But it was, that was also when he started to be seen as like this great learned figure mm -hmm. rather than just a a guy who wrote popular plays right like it'd be like a it'd be like a popular filmmaker today like that's what Shakespeare was but in the Victorian era they started to kind of romanticize that image and place him as this like higher being almost yeah. um and so there was this disparity between like Shakespeare, this great artist, and Shakespeare, a guy from this little village who went to a village school. So it's a really interesting uh, um, dynamic there, I guess. Right. Um, but yeah, like I said, I put absolutely no stock in any of those theories. But I think they're fascinating because I think it says more about about people who want to believe those theories than it says about Shakespeare himself. Well, right. Um, yeah. I don't know. What do you, had you ever heard? And you, you, I'm sure you've heard that yeah. theory before. Had you like, I, I don't know for a lot of the, like Shakespeare didn't write any of this. I kind of just feel like that's just so out of left field. Like I, I know that he might not have been as educated, but we all have stories in our heads, you know, and we know that mm -hmm. he could write. Um, but I do think that it's just, I'm, I'm a student of human beings, I feel like, and like <laughs> watching how other people rationalize things and make thoughts and are like, oh no, he obviously didn't. Like, why can't we just leave, like, I don't know. I just, human nature right. is fascinating. 
There's even there's even a whole movie about it. <laughs> right. And I might own that movie. <laughs> it's a very good movie. It is. It's well, I don't know that I'd call it a good movie. It's an interesting movie. <laughs> right. It's, it's not... an entertaining movie. <laughs> well, and Yeah. Like on the note of Shakespeare being so revered and like such a great writer, some of his plots were ridiculous you know so like oh yeah i think that these theories sometimes give too much like give him too much credit of like right it's just a story it's not like this big you know the most important storyline in the world like we're about to go into the storyline for um much ado and like it's bizarre friends (laughs) Yeah, and, like, that's another thing about, so, like, the Victorian era or, like, the late 19th century, that was also when um, you started to see more of the idea that, like, art and literature are autobiographical, and so if an, if an, if an author writes a story, well, there must be something, like, about that story that, like, parallels that author's life. Right. And so that's when they started to like look at the works of Shakespeare and like look at oh like King Lear has three daughters but Shakespeare only had two daughters so someone <laughs> else must have written it. Like that was like one of I mean I'm obviously I'm oversimplifying that but that was like kind of part of an part of the argument that was made for why he couldn't have written. But like he also like almost none of his stories originated from him he was inspired by and even just straight up used entire stories from other sources so like of course they weren't autobiographical like as much as we like to as much as we like to read into hamlet and his son being named hamnet and having died right before he wrote hamlet like yeah i'm sure that you know things that happened in his life would have affected his state of mind and his emotions, but that doesn't mean that it's an exact like parallel, you know? Well, so it's, it, it reminds me of something that, and you know, we love her. So it makes sense that I would talk about this, but like, it makes me think of what Mindy Kaling talks about when she, talks about how she wrote Mindy Project and people think that she is Mindy Lahiri and it's like right. well, well yeah. no I'm a writer I write things you know so it's it's just interesting that yeah whole exactly thing. he was a writer he wrote things like right <laughs> they weren't like coded messages about you know his life or whatever yeah yeah and it's just fun um <laughs> It is. Um, And I think when I was researching um, this episode and looking at the plot, I had forgotten like half of the plot because. Oh, yeah. There's there's, so much that happens. There's so much that happens and a lot of it is like offensive and kind of awful. So like I I love Beatrice and Benedict, but then the list kind of stops. <laughs> so like, uh-huh. <laughs> um, so if we want to go into the story recap, um, yeah, everyone listening at home, settle in, grab a snack, um, get ready to go off the rails a little bit because this is a weird, 
Let's this do. Is, I don't even. I don't know. But okay. So, so the nobleman Leonardo lives with his brother Antonio, his daughter Hero, and his niece Beatrice in Messina in Italy, or Messina. I don't. I don't know. Um, yeah. Either whatever. way, it's fine. Um, and so Act One, Scene One opens as a group of soldiers return home after the ending of a war. Um, and among the soldiers returning are Don Pedro, Don Juan, Benedict, and Claudio. And so those are going to be um, some main players in in the show. Um, Wait, so, Don Pedro's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, He's not... I like Don Pedro. Okay, go um, on. And I, I have a, a major literary crush on Benedict, obviously. But um, so eh, him, I don't like so much. Oh, I love him. Um, he's he's <laughs> just my type, though. He's like entirely my type. Um, so kind of an this... asshole. <laughs> I think of him kind of as a blubbering <laughs> idiot a little bit. Um, oh, okay, like Andy just... Samberg could play Benedict. <laughs> exactly, he is a Samberg. We just I would watched... ac- I would accept that. <laughs> we watched Palm Springs last night and. Samberg's a little bit of a Benedict, like a gritty Benedict <laughs> in that. But um, so Leonardo and Don Pedro are close friends, um, and this group of soldiers goes straight to Leonardo's house, um, basically upon arriving from the war. I would want to go home, but there we are. So um, it's yeah. here that Claudio, um, who's also of of the nobility, meets Leonardo's daughter Hero, and is just instantly smitten with her um of course and kind of makes makes advances towards her and she's she's good with it too they're they're instantly kind of noted as a couple even though romeo and juliet yeah they don't really like know each other but they're in love Mm -hmm. all of a sudden and then a breath of fresh air when we see beatrice and benedict who um have known each other for a very long time and have kind of been at this war of the wits for as long as they've known each other, um, which always feels so much better than watching Hero and Claudio. I'm always like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I don't want to deal with any of this. Like, oh, I love you. Like, who cares? Um, so we're not the only ones who have noticed Beatrice and Benedict's war of witticisms. Everyone in this house knows oh that's <laughs> that's how they act towards each other that's um they say that they hate each other but we're all just so convinced that that not only do they like each other but they're destined to be together um and so clearly the, yeah exactly so um the the group at um at Leonardo's home kind of create a few different um tricky little um setups to get the two to realize that they're in love with each other so um and so in this same amount of time Hero and Claudio have um not only engaged in a courtship but Claudio has proposed to her and he oh, and wow. Hero has accepted him and so and they're getting married like the next day it, yeah, they're getting ready or getting married like within the week. They are um, in everything that I read about this. They were like, in in contrast with this easy courtship, we see Beatrice and Benedict. But I think of it as like 
Hero and Claudio are just that weird, like, musical theater, like, oh, we're all of a sudden <laughs> betrothed to each other. Yeah. And Beatrice and Benedict are a real couple, at least in my mind. But, um, so... Well, they've known each other for longer than a day. Slightly longer so than a day. So that's a plus. <laughs> it's, you know, know your, your partner is probably a good piece of advice. <laughs> um... And it's based also on the, so the entire group decide that Beatrice and Benedict are destined to each other because of um, just the nuanced attention that they give each other in these insults. Like, you can insult someone for days on end, but you have to know details about them for them to be good insults, right? So, like, mm-hmm. um, so the group orchestrated all sorts of situations um, where Benedict is to overhear that um, Beatrice is in love with him and Beatrice is to overhear that Benedict is in love with her. Um, and then um, these two very intelligent people fall for the trick hook, line and sinker <laughs> and become <laughs> consumed with worry yeah. about these feelings. Like um, it's a little too easy. <laughs> right. It's like, like the feelings had to be there already, right? Like Yeah. Um and I this is one of my favorite parts of the play because they're both so concerned about like <laughs> protecting the other person. Like um Benedict has this whole monologue where he worries that he will be horribly in love with her. Um which has that double meaning of he loves her so much and also that he'll be bad at it. Um, which I always thought was very sweet. Um, (laughs) And so here we get to the part where um, I I hate it. (laughs) Yeah. um, Like, thanks, I hate it. This is the worst. Yeah, it's it's terrible. So Don John is Don Pedro's evil stepbrother. Um, And that's Keanu Reeves in (laughs) the Emma Thompson version. (laughs) Of course it is. Which is so against Keanu Reeves' whole, like, public persona as the super nice guy. And I bet he is genuinely nice. But, like, the character is the exact opposite. It's great. Yeah, it's... I I still haven't seen that version. I'll have to watch it. Um, It's so good. It's on Amazon Prime right now. Oh, then I should have... Okay. Yeah. I'll do that tonight. Um, So... Emma Thompson is Beatrice. Can't... Oh, I perfect. I love her. Okay, so, so Don John, this jerk face, stages a scene where his companion <laughs> Baraccio is engaging in illicit acts with um, Margaret, who is one of Hero's maids, um, and he arranges that Claudio will believe that Margaret is Hero cheating on him. On the night before their wedding, he, Claudio does not fact check. He does not do. Claudio is so gullible. He's like, oh. And be, well, and before this, he believes that, um, that Don Pedro is like pursuing hero himself. Right. Even though like he was trying to like be Claudio's wingman. Yeah, so I forgot just, like, about that whole part. He just that... falls for he just falls for these things. But like, Claudio, what are you? Wh- what are you? <laughs> like... Yeah, calm it down, dude. Like, <laughs> right? 
So he does not calm it down. He does not approach Hero. <laughs> he goes he does, harder. He does not go talk to her. He very publicly rejects Hero the next day at their wedding. So really nice guy. Really, really great. Um, Hero faints at the horrible, embarrassing, awful turn of events because, you know, this also says something to women's agency. And if she were, if word got around that she were an adulteress, you know, like that would mean very different Mm -hmm. things than it does today. That would mean her entire reputation would be done, would be just ended. Um so she faints, and luckily um, the friar doesn't believe any of this. So he goes to Leonato, and he asks him to say that Hero has um, passed away um, to kind of alleviate this kind of sordid story about her and to just kind of, like, that's the quickest fix for how awful mm-hmm. this situation was. That, oh, yeah, she died. It's, you know... Um, <laughs> And wow. elsewhere, I know it's it really does tell you how much that would have been kind of a societal death sentence and what that means for yeah. a woman at this time. Um, so at the same time, Beatrice goes to Benedict and tells him to kill Claudio for these actions, which frankly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, totally. I, yeah. I am 100 percent on Beatrice's side, though. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do it. And like, we'll we'll also get to the way that Hero is written, but she's not given a whole lot of agency ever. Yeah, within nope. this text, but um, nope. So luckily, Dogberry, the count constable, which is one of my favorite names, Dogberry, <laughs> it's pretty good, and he's played by Michael Keaton in the oh funny. in the Thompson version. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll have to go watch this. Okay. Um. Yeah, you really need to watch it. I'm honestly kind of shocked that you haven't already seen it. I yeah, I <laughs> I should have seen this, but I it'll bring me joy later, so hey. Yes. Um so luckily Dogberry and his kind of um group of of other um of other people that he works with over here that Baraccio is bragging about this plot that they've just um, ruined this whole courtship and that they've just they're so proud of what they've done to break up this couple which go get a hobby like why <laughs> so stupid but um, so luckily this whole thing gets gets um, this whole rumor gets kind of fixed but to claudio's brain hero's dead you know so Mm -hmm. um but we never we don't even really hear that much remorse for that either like um claudio goes to leonardo to make amends for this mistake but like i'm not satisfied as a woman listening to this i'm like "Mm, okay um and then i will never be satisfied (laughs) exactly I've been singing Hamilton songs all week. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's good. Um, So, oh gosh, I just lost my words. So Claudio (laughs) isn't that upset either because he's, 
he just switches to Hero's cousin and he's like, okay, I'll marry her. Oh, yeah, that's and fine. Then they, yep. And totally. then like, it happens quickly, too. It's by the end of the play, we see this wedding and um, we see we see Claudio standing at the altar awaiting his bride um, who's wearing a mask. And then mm-hmm. as soon as she gets to the altar, the mask is removed and it's Hero and she is not. Oh, um, yay. She's not passed away, but she's still marrying this guy who didn't really appear to care that much that she yeah. was dead. Uh, but but elsewhere, Benedict proposes to Beatrice, and she accepts him. And we're given that this is a all of this is a happy ending <laughs> Yay, because everyone's of the happy. marriages. Right. <laughs> I have qualms. <laughs> I have some concerns. <laughs> Um. Yes. <laughs> so there's much ado about we do nothing. Have concerns. That's a much ado about a nothing. Nothing. Uh, yeah. Can, can um. We just raise a glass to Hero for how badly she was written in all oh of this. Oh man. Oh man. She. Yeah. So yeah, like I kind of alluded to before. Um. Almost all of Shakespeare's stories came from other sources. Yeah. Um, There's, like, a huge tradition in Italian Renaissance theater um, of this kind of story of of deceived lovers um, who, you know, they're, like, they think that one or the other is, is, um, is uh, unfaithful. Uh Uh-huh. Um. So that was like a pretty common theme um, in the 16th century. Um, one of the direct sources for the story in Much Ado About Nothing might have been the novelle by Matteo Bendello of Mantua, which is about the tribulations of um, a lord and his fiancée, um, and it's kind of a similar storyline that, like, he thinks that she has been unfaithful, but then finds out that it was all a, a misunderstanding. Yeah. It was all much ado about nothing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, these are pretty common in um, the the storytelling of the time. Um, uh, the character of Benedict also has a counterpart in... Um, commentary upon marriage in Orlando Furioso but the uh, but Beatrice seems to be um, a, an original character um, cool. because the the uh, the kind of love story that Benedict and Beatrice have um, was very unusual for the time that was not seen very much yeah. Um you saw you saw more of like the Claudio hero kind uh-huh. of romance, which um, you know is very much like uh, it's actually a lot like Romeo and Juliet in a lot of ways, um, just without the tragedy. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, but there's there's a version of that kind of that kind of plot from Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, um, which I mentioned. Edmund Spencer is one of the contemporaries of Shakespeare who is theorized to have been the actual author of Shakespeare. So that uh, connection is one that, you know, 
conspiracy theorists used to say like, oh, look, he's actually <laughs> the writer. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So some interesting themes that we see in Much Ado About Nothing that I think um, are kind of what um, transitioning into like how we see much ado about nothing's influence in modern media a lot of that influence is through the themes i think um so we have like gender and gender roles um and then all three of these are kind of all interconnected but deception masks and mistaken identity and fatal or grave misunderstandings right um so those ideas will all come back um, when we start to talk about the current media. Yeah. Um, but let's talk a little bit about some notable productions and adaptations. Um, have you, do you recall a notable production that you saw in person? Ooh, do I? Um, oh, gosh, maybe I... Huh. I don't actually know that... I mean, we we had, like, the Ojai Shakespeare Festival in mm-hmm. Ojai, and that they did a production, and it was amazing. Um, mm. Just to see, we would have, like local really like Ojai was kind of the place where Shakespearean actors go to like so their you know livelihoods after being Shakespearean <laughs> whatever so um we saw some pretty great ones what about you um I was trying to remember if I if I have seen it at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival I don't think I have seen it there I saw a high school production of it that was set on like in like the like the 1970s like on a commune so they were all like hippies <laughs> that one was kind of fun um yeah i think the ones that i like when i think of much ado about nothing i definitely think of the 1993 film um yeah. i think that for me will never be topped will never be beaten um (laughs) i do also really like the um the 23rd i think 2012 or 2013 film uh directed by joss whedon oh right so yeah yeah um and it's it's in it's modern day and it's in black and white and i think they like they just like filmed it at someone's house over a weekend I think it's kind of the, yeah, the vibe that I, that you, you kind of get that, you know, that yeah. comes across when you're watching it too. Um, so I really, I, I really like that one as well. Um, just today I watched a web series called Messina High. Yeah. That sets it in a modern high school. I so love that. it's very like, it's, it doesn't use Shakespeare's text. Um, <laughs> but it's very like uh, 10 Things I Hate About You-esque, right. which of course, 10 Things I Hate About You is Taming of the Shrew. So um, 
Yeah, I was not uh, on board with all of their interpretations of things Okay, in that, but I still thought it was a very interesting uh, idea. Yeah. It was still enjoyable. Um, what were the things they got maybe wrong? Or got- um, I think just like some of the characterizations... Okay. Of some of the characters, which that could have been actor choice. That could have been, uh-huh. you know, direction. Um, yeah. But I'd still recommend it. Yeah. It's all on, it's all on YouTube. Um, and then, oh, um, the, so the public theater in Central Park in yes. New York City. They put on, in 2018, they put on a... Um, a production of Much Ado About Nothing with an all-black cast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, directed by Kenny Leon. So I I think that the full version of it is available somewhere online, but Yay. you might have to pay for it. Um, but uh, I've watched a lot of, like, highlights and clips from it on YouTube, and it is, like insanely good like it's so stinking good so it's set in modern modern day um but like just like the way that like the actors like they use Shakespeare's full text but the way that they speak it like it sounds completely natural and it's so good and and they're all like have you seen clips of it I've seen clips of Beatrice, and I was just oh, in oh, love with it. She's phenomenal! Oh my goodness! Yeah, and there's and like they really pull out the comedy too. Yeah, like there's like all the clips I've seen are just so funny. Um, I don't. So yeah, if you can, if you don't mind paying for it, if you find it, like it's probably worth it. But yeah. I don't know if I've um, seen a more natural. Expl- presentation of the text ever like yeah just the way that so they natural. do it is incredible. so organic yeah. yeah it was just because I think that's a major issue even with professional theater it um mm-hmm. Shakespeare it can feel so stilted you know um, right and that is not the think, case <laughs> yeah right yeah and I think that kind of goes back to that Victorian idea of like elevating Shakespeare as this larger than life artist and so we have to like revere his words but yeah like he wrote for the masses like this was just like everyday people um performing and watching these plays so yeah like it should feel organic and natural even though they're using words and speech patterns that we don't use anymore like it's still human it's yeah. still, you know, yeah. And yeah, I I agree that that's probably like, I think of any Shakespeare that I've ever seen, that production was like the best at getting that aspect of it right. Um, I'm excited to watch more clips of it because it really did yes. just blow me away. Yeah. Um, Very highly recommend. Yeah. Um, and then I also, I watched a behind the scenes, um, video, um, where they were talking to the director and he was talking about like the different modern aspects that he brought into it, uh, which that was really interesting too. So 
Yeah, we'll oh, link yeah. a couple of videos. But you can also, you know, just go check it out. I think it's on like uh, PBS um, on their like streaming service. Oh, on one of their so, like masterpiece performances or whatever. Yeah, or cool. yeah, the great performances or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You well, know what? I might just bite the bullet and just and just pay to watch I, the whole thing because. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking it would be worth a buy. We are not getting paid by them, but it would. I in for my personal yeah. life, it would be worth it. But hey, PBS, if you want to sponsor. <laughs> I can't think of yeah. a more perfect pairing than us and PBS, but right. We'll leave oh it my up gosh! To you. Yes, balls in your court, friends. Yeah, so that's um, it's the the public theater, um, directed by mm-hmm, Kenny mm-hmm. Leon. Yes, in case you guys want to Google it, go for it. And you know, it also this feels like a continuation of a conversation we had in Jane Eyre. Uh, episode yeah just about how who classics are for and how and also what a classic is <laughs> and so largely Shakespeare is cast with entirely white casts and it's oh yeah a humongous problem um I that, think I do think though with Shakespeare it's especially in in theater, it's a lot more common for Shakespeare to have an eth- ethnically diverse cast versus like a a film of a Jane Austen novel. Okay, um, and I think I think theater in general just has more. Um, I I guess the term would be like colorblind casting than film does. Um, but I, but also with Shakespeare in particular, I feel like there's, because Shakespeare is seen as like almost a transcendent work yeah. that like it, you know, nothing matters but the text, I guess. Right. I don't know if, if that is exactly what I'm, I'm trying to say, but like, <laughs> um, but because like it's, you know, it's not, we don't see Shakespeare as having to be set in a particular time and place like we do with most other things like Jane Austen or Charles Dickens although those have been you know set in different times and places too but um but I think because it's so pervasive and because it's because Shakespeare's works are um are seen as so like foundational to our literature and our storytelling that it is just more common to um, disregard the quote unquote accuracy, like historical accuracy, I guess. I certainly Um, hope so. It's always a fear of mine. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. Just my observations. Like it's yeah. Did you know that Much Ado is also an opera? Well, I do now. Because, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, Beatrice at Benedict is a French opera. Um, It's in French? Yeah, it was originally in French. 
It was written by Hector Berlioz, um, and it premiered in France. That's so in, funny. I, right? Um, in 1862. Because, like, opera, opera is usually in Italian, and Much Ado takes place in Italy, so wouldn't it nope. make sense <laughs> for it to be in Italian? French later, it was produced in German, and eventually it, it came, uh, and now it's in English. Um but it, you would think that it would be in Italian, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, so it's a com. It's a. It's what's called an opera comique. Um, so it's in. It's a comedic opera, um, in two acts, and um, and the just a little bit of like terminology that is important to the storytelling. So, um. The music of the of Beatrice at Benedict is um, consists largely of arias, duos, nocturnes, drinking songs, and then the march oh. nuptial. So the the marriage, because um, all the marriages, so that means it's happy at the end, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so oh, yeah. for those like me um, who did not know what these terms were. Um, an aria is a light and repetitive piece of music um, for usually for one performer. Um, a duo is a duet. A nocturne is a piece of music which is reminiscent of the night, which is just such a funny description <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, it's so vague. Like, who decides if it's reminiscent of the night? <laughs> right? Like, do we all have the same evenings? Like, I don't... Okay. Right. <laughs> um, and it also includes drinking songs, um, which are similar to maybe like just like the classic drinking songs um, from Ireland and from a lot of places. I grew up with the ones from Ireland. I'm not trying to like place them in a in a place, but um, the Star Spangled Banner is an English drinking song. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. My grandmother always just played the Irish ones, so those that's kind of the context oh, okay. that I had, but. Um, so all of those um, types of music are important because obviously an opera is entirely sung. So um, the way that the music is written for each character depends on these types of songs. Um, so Beatrice's music is really, really interesting to me because it's written for a soprano voice, as is Hero. Um, but the music written for Beatrice... What? I, Beatrice right, is like, so clearly an alto. That's that was what I was thinking too. Um, that makes no sense. And the music written for Beatrice is luckily the exact opposite of that that's written for Hero. So she's given these kind of glorious low brassy notes, um, and then pops up pretty sparingly into her soprano. Um, and all hmm, the majority of her um, voice is also. Um, uh, forte so it's not light and lilting and airy it's pretty um it's pretty great it's very vibrant and loud as Beatrice would be in music form oh, yeah of course um thank goodness because if they gave her a bunch of like <laughs> light delicate whatever I'd be not excited but well no. maybe I'd be excited but okay um <laughs> another really cool thing about Beatrice's um, music is that she gets these incredible horns and like brass section accompaniment where um hero is given flutes and obviously delicacy Mm. and all this stuff um and it's like it's just really interesting to me to see 
um, how even though it was written for a soprano, she kind of reaches down into these like almost jazzy notes, which are just really mm. exciting, I think. Um, and so and when was the when was the opera written? Did you already say 18? Let me check. I said it. I think I rushed. Okay. It. It, 1862. Okay. Um, Interesting. And then it's been updated. Like, the Seattle Opera just did a version in 2018, um, where I'm oh, okay. sure that they made a bunch of changes and made her fiercer and all of that, um, as they should. So, in terms of kind of the music of Beatrice and Benedict, their relationship... Um, they great they get this great um banter obviously that replicates the text um and they're given these quick staccato notes um but the interesting thing is that they both sing very similar or they sing they both sing the exact same melody even when they're fighting with each other so they'll oh, be saying that they're so um, that they're so mad at each other, that they're so like not in sync while singing the exact same words together <laughs> at the exact same time, um, which I thought was a really, really fun way of showing that um, the music, this specific piece of music is called the insulting love duet, um, where they're <laughs> insulting each other, but singing the exact same thing. <laughs> so it's it's really fun and funny and, and kind of a sweet way to represent that, I thought. Um, and so we know that Hero wasn't given much agency in the text, and it's she's not given much exciting, brassy, fun music in this either. Mm. Um, she gets the arias, she gets a lot of the nocturnes, um, and her nights, it turns out, are very slow and sad and kind of light. Um, so the three women do get kind of a, a trio. Um, it's Beatrice, Hero, and um, the the maid Ursula. They get kind of a, a three-part trio together where they discuss how great love is and blah, 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 mm. blah. It's kind yeah. of a time where Beatrice sure, is Jan. She's kind of fitting in with those like stereotypical um how females were written at this time um mm -hmm. which is kind of fun to then see her brassy low notes later in the play uh, or in the opera um and yeah just most of hero's stuff is slow and legato and just like an airy aria, as you would classically expect it. Not to say that it's not incredibly gorgeous, you know, it's an mm -hmm. opera, but it is, it leaves much to be desired, I think. Um, but does a good job of showing in music form how these characters were written in the text. Um, oh, and Benedict's music is really fun, too. So Benedict um, gets a bunch of what are called rondos. So a rondo... Mm is a piece of music which stays the it's same. Not, it's not me. No, it's I'm not. not I'm not, not Rondo. Rhonda. No. <laughs> Although that would be, you should like make your own type of music. I feel like it's called yes. a Rhonda. <laughs> I love it. Everyone's going to be singing them. Everyone be better great. learn a Rhonda or two. Um, <laughs> 
So yeah, a ronda is a is like a refrain. So it's a piece of music mm-hmm. which stays the same but is placed with different, um, different songs and different musics, but doesn't uh, doesn't change, which is really important for Benedict because it highlights. Um, the fact that Benedict is working through the same larger problem of what does he do about Beatrice and he's going to let her down and he's going to really love her and he's really scared about mm-hmm. it. Um, so it's important that he would be given the same refrain in a multitude of different songs because that's his one concern in the whole play. That's what he's really mm-hmm. grappling with. Um so that is as much as I found out about the opera, but I just, um, anytime I read about how different types of music can tell a story, I just, I get fascinated yeah. with it. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. Are you, were you able to find, like, if you're able to watch videos of it anywhere, or Yeah, the clips? Seattle Opera has their 2018, like, oh, clips okay. from it. And the full, they did a full cast album of that production. Um, Oh, okay. That's what I was listening to this morning. And I really, well, I mean, thanks to Hannibal, I felt uh, (laughs) every time I listen to uh, classical music, I feel kind of like a murderer. But, because he listens to it all. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I was listening to their recording of like Beatrice's um individual stuff and I and mm-hmm. um the the insult duo or whatever the um oh, okay yeah and it was really um that I think they might have added even more horns and brass to Beatrice's stuff mm-hmm. because it really sounded jazzy and gorgeous and I was I was a fan yeah that sounds interesting I wonder how like having it being be all music or be all sung how that changes or if it does change like kind of the conflicts in the story right like like could because like opera and and well and also like musical theater they're kind of like fantasy in a way because like it's not Obviously, in real life, people don't sing their feelings at each other all the time. So it's kind of like a step removed from reality. Right. So, like, how does that change how we perceive the conflict in the story? Because obviously, you can't have a story without a conflict. Like, a lot of operas, I feel like, tend to have their conflict be something like war or yeah. murder or, um, you know, the things that you typically find in Shakespeare tragedies. But Much Ado About Nothing is a comedy. And, like, the conflict is much more about, like, mistaken identity or just, like, misunderstandings or right. miscommunications which like it's it's that's not the kind of conflict that you would see in a lot of opera. You do see that in musical theater though. And I would like that's wonder, exactly <laughs> right. I would wonder if the music would make these kind of weird misunderstandings more believable because music sure. is kind of a like expression of that heightened emotion. 
And so I Mm -hmm. wonder if you would get more of Claudio's just general fears about marriage and about all of that and then kind of see why that heightened emotion leads him to believe these things about Hero that if you were thinking rationally and if you weren't so deeply afraid and acting on that fear, you maybe wouldn't believe. I don't know. I wonder. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an yeah, that is an interesting angle to think of it. Um has like of course like a story has to have conflict or you don't have a story. But yeah, it does get like tricky because like in a romantic comedy, which I I would argue much do about nothing is a romantic comedy. Uh-huh. Um because it has a light tone, you can't have a conflict like a war <laughs> or right. you know like or like the battle between good and evil so <laughs> like you have to have like these conflicts that don't have such dire consequences yeah um even though you, i would argue that like convincing someone that another person has died is maybe starts to skew away from the romantic comedy well right. um <laughs> like that's kind of not a great thing to do no. um <laughs> um but i think in general like we do see like it's these miscommunications and misunderstandings and even like intentional deception um as a way to introduce more relational conflict rather yeah. than like that global conflict of the war or the the yeah. battle between the forces of good and evil um so <laughs> um but both pairs of lovers in much ado so both uh benedict and beatrice and claudio and hero have some element of deception or misunderstanding that complicates their relationship and complicates their path to their quote unquote happily ever after. So of course, as we have emphasized several times, Claudio is deceived many times. Um, (laughs) He's deceived into thinking that Don Pedro is in love with hero and is trying to pursue her for himself. And then later he is deceived into thinking that Hero is unfaithful to him. And then he's deceived into thinking that Hero is dead. And then there's there's a final one. He is deceived into thinking that Hero is Beatrice at their wedding. Yes. So, like, how does he, why does he keep falling for this? Like, yeah. Claudio. <laughs> Claudio, um, you need to have a talk right now, friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, <laughs> but then Benedict and Beatrice, they're both kind of tricked into revealing their feelings to each other. Yeah. Um, by, you know, these well-planned, intentionally overheard comments from various other characters. Um, so in their case the the deception or the the um the manipulation actually serves their coming to an understanding with each other because without that maybe they never would have right um which is a really interesting 
element to throw in there that like complicating it further made it have the intended outcome rather than stopping the relationship yeah interesting (laughs) yeah but this kind of like this kind of relational conflict is basically every conflict that we see in every romantic comedy (laughs) is some kind of relational conflict like this um you know there's like there's a misunderstanding there's a miscommunication there's mistaken identity and that is what complicates the 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 two love interests path toward their happy ending uh just like a couple of examples that i thought of just because i don't know i i watch a lot of rom-coms okay um it's good yeah <laughs> yeah um hitch is yes. i think one of my favorite rom-coms I um love it. so that Right. So that has kind of, I guess, not mistaken identity, but more of like a hidden identity uh-huh. um, uh, with uh, Alex and Sarah or you know, Will Smith and Eva Mendes. Oh, I um, love her in that movie. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yes. They're, yeah, they're both so great. Um, but they have that kind of uh, element of like, uh, like she does like he's not, you know upfront about his true identity at first like that's kind of a a common thing in rom-coms that like like you don't know that like this person is the same person as this other person that you've heard of you know and like Clark Kent and Superman like yeah right yeah (laughs) yeah no one can just ask a question like you have to like go on believing the thing that you assumed when you first met them um and often the worst yeah. thing, like just the <laughs> right. like most horrible thing you could ever hear about a person. You're like, I believe it. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> the wedding planner. Yes. <laughs> um, because Jennifer Lopez doesn't know at the beginning that Matthew McConaughey is already engaged. Uh-huh. When they like go on their pseudo date <laughs> or whatever. Oh um, yeah. Um, you, you had an example on here too. I did. I thought of Jane the Virgin, um, and I'm not going to give away the ending of Jane the Virgin, but there are so (laughs) many mistaken identity moments, um, and just kind of, and which I am given to understand is a large part of the telenovela as well. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, just the... The mistaken identity and all and misunderstandings. Um, Jane the Virgin has so many plot twists um, throughout the entire series. Like so much happens in that show, but I do think, and it's such a classic rom com um, of a television show. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to rewatch that whole show. I love it, but um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I feel like you could define Jane the Virgin as. Mistaken identity and misunderstandings ensue, and then you would get <laughs> yes. like that's how she gets, um, that's how she gets pregnant. And she gets that's pregnant. How, yeah, that's the whole premise of the show is a mistaken identity because um, the gynecologist believes her to be the Petra, the woman who wants to be wants to um, be inseminated, and 
she's wrong, and then we get five glorious seasons of it. So, um, <laughs> Jess hasn't finished actually. Oh, love it. Anyway, I don't even my... remember where I left off. Well, so much but, happens. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> so much. Yeah, another, um, more literary example of this is Cyrano de Bergerac, uh-huh. which I think you know, maybe that. That could be a whole lit summer episode on its yeah. own. Because that's been, you know, that whole theme or that whole trope has been used so many times. Um, oh, absolutely. The idea of, um, you know, like um, love interests, one love interest not knowing the other's true identity because it's, you know, through like writing letters or... um or in like more recent iterations through text messages, um, <laughs> and and that that one is more of like an intentional um, mistaken identity. It's, so I guess it's not mistaken, but it's like an intentionally misrepresented identity. I guess. Yeah. Um, but I think that still kind of fits into that. Um, and then like just any rom com that has that. Oh no, he has a girlfriend, but it was actually his sister. <laughs> like, right? Um, yeah. Um, there's a lot. There's and a I, lot of them. Whenever <laughs> I hear about them, you know, it all goes back to what we were talking about a little earlier about the fear that accompanies falling in love with someone. You know, like you're mm-hmm. so terrified to be vulnerable that you almost are more likely to believe the worst in them so that then you can run away and be safe again. You know? So when you hear these ridiculous, like, I heard he blah, 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 blah. You don't question it in these, uh, in a heightened rom-com. You don't question it. You just think, oh, I don't want to deal with that. And then you kind of run away scared, right? Um, Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know that idea of the heightened sense of emotions like in a rom-com like I think like I'm not the first one to discuss this but but romantic comedies in a way are a form of fantasy as well like right the the world of a romantic comedy is not like the real world (laughs) so (laughs) that is I mean and to a certain extent you could say that with like any genre of film or theater but especially in a romantic comedy it's that emotional fantasy um with like the heightened emotions the um coincidences and and the miscommunications that we say oh but real people wouldn't act like that (laughs) yeah um (laughs) but i mean Sometimes real people do act like that. I don't know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes you don't say what you need to say to your significant other and, and, you know, things go bad. Like, that happens. Um, Sometimes this statement of that's not what a real person would say gives us too much credit (laughs) as people. We do say stupid stuff all the time. For sure. (laughs) Um. But that is, like, very much, like, a romantic comedy trope. Absolutely. Of the the misunderstanding. Um, which, you know, comes from, uh, I'd, I'd argue, like, 
all of Shakespeare's comedies have some element of that, um, but especially yeah. uh, Much Ado About Nothing. Um, but then another rom-com trope that we get specifically from Much Ado About Nothing is this idea of um, like rivals to lovers or hate to love. Yeah. Where the two love interests hate each other at the beginning, but then they fall in love or they realize that they have always been in love, yeah. um, which, you know, the, the the line is blurry between those two. Um, but we have some really great examples of this in some of my favorite stories. Uh-huh. I'm sure I'm sure you have some as well. Some of these might even be some of your favorite stories, too. Um, so we have Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy from Pride oh, and Prejudice, which they're so Lizzie is very, uh, very much like Beatrice yeah. in her, um, which I'll talk a little bit more about um, about those similarities later on. Um but that relationship between them where they trade like barbs and witticisms and then realize they're in love. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's that same kind of relationship because like how could you so effectively get under someone else's skin unless you knew them so well? Yeah. And how and how could you know them that well without loving them so it's that same kind of idea as Beatrice and Benedict and then we also see that in Han Solo and Princess Leia from Uh Star Wars which I love um which by the way the um so we did the um the Patreon um uh, special dramatic reading from Much Ado About Nothing, we did it to accompany our Star Wars episode. Yeah. Because we have we have remarked upon this parallel before. Uh-huh. Um, it's great. It's, you should go it listen is great. to it. Yeah. It's so great. <laughs> um, and then just a few other um, romantic comedies that have this idea. You've got male, uh-huh. which is in some ways, I think, inspired by Pride and Prejudice, but it also has that element of Beatrice and Benedict. Um, The Proposal. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Which some parts of that movie are like, "Eh," did not age well. Um, But but, um, definitely that dynamic between... uh, Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds. And then have you seen Set It Up on Netflix? I started it, but I never finished it. I think I finished it. Okay. Yeah. So that also has two couples, which is like, this is actually very common in uh, Shakespeare comedies that you have two couples and one of the couples is like more like, sweet and innocent and then the other couple is more like conflicting right and like um which is interesting um yeah so it has that element to it as well um um but then 
with Beatrice specifically. So we love Beatrice. We do love her. We love her. Um, she is our our hero, but not hero. The not hero, but she's yeah. hero is not <laughs> our hero. Um, I think hero gets um, gets the short end of the stick, but oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so Beatrice, <laughs> <laughs> um, I have taken it upon myself to find Beatrice's spiritual daughters in literature and media. Yes. And I have been I've been doing this for years without realizing it. Every time I find a character that reminds me of Beatrice, I'm like, "Oh, she's my favorite." Uh-huh. So <laughs> So a Beatrice is a heroine who is witty and sarcastic, maybe even acerbic at times, um, who either doesn't know her true feelings or she doesn't show them. Right. But her bark is worse than her bite. Yeah. So as Beatrice herself says, she was born to speak all mirth and no matter. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, she will insult or argue with the person that she loves either as a sign of affection or to hide her affections or possibly both. Yes. The line's kind of blurry there. Um, so this archetype is often seen, um, kind of in its more like, uh, I guess sinister or darker iteration as like a mean girl, um, uh-huh. you know, as a side character or as the antagonist. So I thought of like both Janice and Regina from Mean Girls. Um, right. I see a lot of Beatrice in them. But, you know, Janice is a side character and Regina is an antagonist. Um, and, uh, or you know what? Actually, Janice can kind of be seen as an antagonist in some ways. Um, yeah, but, um, in, uh, Ian Deutsch, Deutscher's, Deutscher or Deutscher, um, the guy who wrote the William Shakespeare's Star Wars book. Oh, uh-huh. He, he also wrote William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Mean Girls. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so in his afterword, um, he talks about his process for you know kind of like the inspiration behind um the each of the characters um and so he he wrote about how he had a different um Shakespeare character in mind that matched up with each of the characters in Mean Girls so here I'll just read this part of it here um, so instead of including Shakespearean references at whim, whenever and wherever they occurred to me, I paired each main female character in Mean Girls with a Shakespearean counterpart. In other words, each Shakespearean reference is taken from a specific Shakespearean character. I love So the that. characters that... Yeah, and it's so good, too. Um, so the characters that he paired together... Um, Janice is Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing. He says Beatrice has a caustic, biting wit and a fierce loyalty to her friends. 
And then he paired Regina with Kate from Taming of the Shrew. Okay. Um, sure. Which is kind of a similar character. Um, yeah. Just, you know, maybe more, a little more caustic and more bitter than Beatrice. Sure. Um but then what I also found really fascinating about this is that for Katie, his, his inspiration was Miranda from The Tempest. But at one point, he uses the lines from Hero in Much Do About Nothing. Interesting. Just, yeah. So I, I just found that really, really interesting because... Um, um, this idea of uh, what I like to call a Beatrice, a character who is a Beatrice. Like, we don't usually see that kind of character. Like, I feel like it's more rare to see that character as the protagonist. Um, Emma Woodhouse is another example of this yes. kind of a character, especially as portrayed by Anya Taylor-Joy in the 2020 adaptation, which... yeah. I am obsessed with it, it is so, so good. good. Um, it's so good. Um, but Jane Austen even wrote of her that she was a heroine no one but myself will much like. Huh. So Austen didn't think that readers would like Emma because she's not the kind of female character that we typically root for. Um, Emma is outright mean on occasion. Um, she's a little bit Regina George. Yeah. So. Yeah, so often we're we're given heroines who are more like hero. You know, they project an air of like innocence and sweetness and even if they do have agency, it's not seen as um you know, they we we don't we don't see them use their agency in any like meaningful or effective ways most of the time. Yeah. Um yeah, so it's Hero, it's Bianca from Taming of the Shrew, it's Juliet, um, it's Katie Heron from Mean Girls. Um, and, you know, we we love these heroines, um, but not all women are like these characters. You know, right. a, a lot of women are more like Beatrice, they're more like Regina or Janice. Um, so, I don't know, I, I don't know what my conclusion is <laughs> about that but that's I guess just like an observation that um, I think it's more rare to see a character like Beatrice be the protagonist yeah because um, we do have we have of course Elizabeth Bennett um, is probably the more the most famous Beatrice like character yeah um Princess Leia, but she's not the protagonist. Right. Um, yeah. Um, a lot of the a lot of the characters that I could think of were like side characters, or they were love interests, or they were um, the antagonist. Yeah. Um, um, I did think of Cat uh, Stratford from Ten Things I Hate About You, and of, of course. course she's based on. Kate from Taming of the Shrews, so that makes sense. That tracks. Um, but then also Liz Lemon. Uh-huh. And Lorelai Gilmore. Yes. You know, they both have like um you know, they're they're both 
Liz and Lorelai are both very likable characters. Like, we root for them. But they can both be kind of mean sometimes. Yeah. Like, kind of unknowingly, they can say something sarcastic or, or biting that, um, at least with Lorelai, like, we don't ever see, um, like, you know, people feeling hurt by what she says but if she said that to someone in real life like that might be kind of hurtful um or like when we she did... insults Su- uh, suki and <laughs> oh yeah that's a good example to. yeah like, yeah that's a good one a joke or being funny and in her head i feel like she's so excited about being funny and then she realizes right. oh shoot i just really offended this person yeah you know? which is totally relatable yeah um but then I thought it was interesting with Liz Lemon when she like goes back to her high school reunion and she finds out, wait, I was the mean girl. Yes. Like, like she had put on like this, almost like this armor of like, she's going to be, you know, really sarcastic and, and biting toward other people as a defense. But it just ended up coming off like she was a bully. Right. Um, which is really interesting. It makes me think of Helga Pataki from Hey Arnold, who is like such a gooey ball of nerves and is just in love with with Arnold, but to the outside world because of her, you know, home life and because of so many other things, she gets by through being cutting. Yeah, so. Yeah, totally. Which is very Beatrice. Yeah. That's I feel like with Beatrice, we don't get to explore that too much in the text, but I feel like that's kind of where she's coming from is that, you know, she's she's a woman in what, like the 15th or 16th century. And so yeah. she doesn't have a lot of agency or independence. And so what can she do? She right. can use her words like that's all she has yeah like her wits are all she has um and I feel like that's kind of where she's coming from a lot of the time um I also just put on this list any Catherine Hepburn character yes (laughs) I feel like she was kind of like the master of that biting wit you know uh fast talking sarcastic lady yeah absolutely um yeah um and she could trade insults with the best of them right she was great at it um loving insults (laughs) you might say oh i like uh you stuck up half-witted scruffy looking nerf herder it's just perfect (laughs) um yeah i think that's another thing that I think um, Much Ado has influenced in many other works is um, the art of the really well-written, loving insults. You know, the really Mm. kind of well-doctored... I kid because I care. Exactly. Um, (laughs) And that is a through line in one of my favorite um, recent shows, um... Schitt's Creek, spelt with S-C-H-I-T-T. Yes. Can't, no, we can't swear. We can't get the E rating. No, it's spelled (laughs) with a C, you guys. Okay, okay. 
That's it's, fine. Yeah. So um, I think I said asshole earlier, so we're probably fine. So we're probably we're we're probably good. We yeah we can't get that. We're, we're good though. No. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> so in Schitt's Creek, I kind of feel like the entire Rose family are operating from this place of I need to insult the world around me. Um, (laughs) So I am going to do it because I'm so intensely vulnerable. So for those who don't obsessively watch it like I do, um, the Rose (laughs) family have lost everything. The very first episode is them losing their mansion, losing their millions and millions of dollars. Um, and kind of the government for, like taking it all back because they haven't paid their um, anything, any bill ever. It's like the op- <laughs> it's like the opposite of the Beverly Hillbillies. Exactly. Um, and it's <laughs> okay. It's, I get it now. Yes, that's exactly the show. Um, and it's been it's pinned on like an accountant who did them wrong or something. But um, uh, okay. So you see, the reason that I kind of connect it um, to Beatrice is that they're so, um, they're they're forced to move to a small town that they bought as a joke, like 20 years before. <laughs> it's the only thing that the government will allow them to keep is this small town. Um, and so they just own a whole town? Yeah, they own the whole town. How does that work? Like they so own all the land, or they like, own like the all the buildings to the town. Um, so like someone else is the mayor of it, and someone else like runs it, but they technically own like the the town and its government and all of all of that. Um, how, and so oh, interesting. They come from. I didn't such, know that you could own town. I didn't either until I watched it. Huh. Um, it hadn't even maybe a Sounds like to feudalism me. to me. <laughs> well, right. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like some feudalism. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, just feudalism on a Tuesday. Feudalism on a Tuesday. Um, I love it. it. I think another really big um, place you see kind of in Dan Levy's writing of these characters, um, they're coming from a place of vulnerability, but they're also having to fall back in love with each other as a family. Like, they're estranged. Mm. They don't know each other anymore. They've all, because of their intense wealth, have all fallen into kind of weird, bad habits that are selfish. Um, so when they move to this small town, they it's a chance to re-get to know each other. And within that, you mm-hmm. see those insults where you can tell that they deeply love each other on some level somewhere. Because, like we were talking about earlier, they know each other so well, and you don't Mm -hmm. know some like you don't choose to get to know someone if you don't care about them. You would just like cut them out. Um, And a really telling part of this, so you've just seen um, the siblings Alexis and David fight the whole time um, in these very cutting, very funny um, Beatrice-esque ways, Beatrice-Benedict-esque ways, except they're mm. siblings. Um, mm-hmm. But then we get this big reveal. So Alexis is talking about how she partied for most of her 20s and she lived a, like just a life where her family never knew where she was because she was partying and because she was you know, just living a life that was maybe questionable. And David says, 
for once, David stops just kind of being witty with her. And David mm-hmm. just says, who do you think called all the consulates to get you to home? Like, who do you think had to stay up all night by the phone hoping that you were safe? Mm. I have lived as your brother in such a state of vulnerability, worrying where on earth you were. So you see his intense mm-hmm. love of her when you might have thought that um, because of how he talks to her in these same kind of witticisms that they didn't get along so- too well. But it's actually because sure. he loves her so much. And I think that that's a through line of how <laughs> how the Rose family engages with the people of the town as well. They they kind of make fun of them for being like less than them for not having any money. Um, mm-hmm. But it turns into like a love, a love of the entire town and they fall in love with the Benedict is kind of their town, you know, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that was just, I think that um, if you go back and watch it, a lot of Dan Levy's writing is centered on these very, very funny, <laughs> quick, witty replies um, that I definitely think were inspired by Much Ado. Much Ado. Yeah, you Much know, I, I think we've talked about this before. Like, I think I watched maybe like the first one or two episodes of Schitt's Creek and I like couldn't get into it. Like, I couldn't. I think because, like, I couldn't feel any sympathy for the characters. Right. It's kind of like the same thing with, like, Orange is the New Black. Like, I could not, like, get on board with that character. Right. So, like, I can't watch this. <laughs> so, yeah. I think when I watched I don't know. Shit's Maybe I'll, Creek- I'll try to give it another try. <laughs> I watched the entire first season in one sitting. Um, and that's mm-hmm. how I got through that, I think, because I didn't like them either. But then you start, they really get under your skin, I think. Um, mm. Okay. Because it comes, I think that that's an important part of their arc is that they are detestable at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then you see this incredible kind of change and subtle, I don't know. I'm also just obsessed with Catherine O'Hara, so. Oh, yeah. On me. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Um, but that's interesting because, like, this kind of goes back to, like, what I was talking about a little bit before with, like, um, you know, with Jane Austen saying of Emma that she doesn't think anyone's going to like her. Right. Like, is that an important thing to people to be able to like the protagonist of the of the story that that we're consuming. Yeah. And I feel like yeah, I do want to like the protagonist, but at the same time like I I want the protagonist to be free to be unlikable because right. that's human because like I mean like no one likes another person 100% of the time. Like of course. they could be your best friend, they could be the love of your life there's still going to be at least some little things that you don't like. Like, so uh, yeah, it's kind of, and I think especially when we get into talking about like female protagonists, that like the idea that 
we have to like the female protagonist, I Uh think is somewhat rooted in sexism because we don't often have that same standard for male protagonists. Like, um, I don't know if this is a good example because maybe people actually do like him, but like Walter White or like Tony Soprano that like deep, they're like deeply flawed and I would say unlikable. Yeah. But, but people are still like on board with their stories. Whereas that's not as true for a lot of like, well, and you just don't see as many female protagonists who are that kind of morally reprehensible. (laughs) Like I think maybe Orange is the New Black was, was, uh, um, an example of that. Right. Um, or like with the example of Breaking Bad, um, Skylar White gets her moment to be kind of bad, but only after mm-hmm. we've known her for seasons. Yeah. So you're like already invested right. in her character. And then yeah. she gets to be just so, ah, love, oh my gosh, I love that character. But um, but yeah, you, you don't get it right away. And I think you're absolutely right that you're given characters like Walter White and Jesse Pinkman, who are men who are detestable right mm-hmm. off the bat. Yeah. Well, and, you know, if you think of like, so who would you say is the protagonist of Much Ado About Nothing? Ooh. Is it Beatrice? Yeah. Or is it Benedict? Is oh. it Benedict? Well. Or is it Claudio? no but i think that's a significant um part of the discussion because yeah if if benedict is the protagonist then the the idea that that we have to like him at least for a modern audience you know i don't know how people would have felt about it you know back in shakespeare's time but for a modern audience he, you know, wouldn't necessarily have to be quote unquote likable. Right. Um, and I don't think that like, I don't think that Beatrice is unlikable. Sure. I think that, that, um, I mean, I love her of course, but I don't actually really know where I'm going with this. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. Um, (laughs) I would be interested to see. I've only seen very modern portrayals of Beatrice. I would be interested to see how she's portrayed back then. um, Sure. And kind of how that changes. Because right now she like, I think many of the people who have put on the productions I've seen have loved her as much as we do. And I would be interested to see a production where um, Benedict was kind of the the lead, like the lead person you're supposed to follow, the eyes that you're supposed to see everything through, that sort of thing. Hmm. Well, I think in the um, in the 1993 movie, so um, Brana directed it, and he also played Benedict, and I feel like he kind of made Benedict the protagonist. If the okay. play has a protagonist. It's kind of him, but it does also, I mean, the play itself, like the text, opens with a scene where Beatrice is kind of the star of the scene. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I don't know if the play really has a protagonist, like yeah. one protagonist. Um, uh, Beatrice is, in the in the very first scene of the play, Beatrice is very much um, 
the at the forefront of the scene and we're supposed to i think be getting to know and appreciate her as a character right and, yeah yeah which i think that would um by modern standards that would set her up as the protagonist yeah um but like i don't know if that was the intention right um and i don't know if it matters if that was the intention because like are you know Shakespeare's been dead for 400 years and so it's like <laughs> we <laughs> yeah so like it's it's all up to our interpretation now um yeah so I think we can read that however we want um but yeah it's just it's an interesting idea um the idea of like if a woman is the protagonist of a story, she has to be likable. And I think that's, right. you know, a very harmful idea because then, you know, women have to pretend to be likable all the time. Well, which is, oh, which is like, it, like a uh, Gone Girl. I don't know if you've like read or seen Gone Girl. I haven't. It's on but my TBR, but yeah. Yeah, there's like a whole, um, hopefully I won't like spoil anything. No, it's fine. I'll forget. You, okay. Um, <laughs> but there's kind of like a whole like um, kind of s- not even subtext, but like kind of a running um, theme about like, you know, women like pretending to be like the cool girl so uh-huh. that men will like them. Um, because like the, the Amy, the protagonist, like we would say that she's unlikable, Uh um, but, but she like kind of hides her, um, like her more off-putting characteristics, right? um, in the first part of the book. And then in the second part of the book, she kind of reveals like who she really is. And it's kind of making this, um, the statement that, you know, women put so much, we put so much pressure on ourselves to be likable Mm -hmm. that we often don't speak our own minds and we don't, um, you know, say what we really mean all the time. Um, yeah. So I think a character like Beatrice is so revolutionary and so inspiring because like, it was the 16th century and and she was speaking her mind she yeah. was matching she was like matching wits as an equal yeah. with a man and and she was written by a man which is even more kind of uh not shocking but like even more kind of like huh like yeah. this was written by like by like an old white dude like 400 years ago and she's this like I wouldn't call her a feminist but she's like very modern feeling. Yeah. So yeah. You know, lots to think me, about. <laughs> it also makes me think of characters like Scarlett O'Hara. Um Oh sure, yeah. Where to the outside world she's what women are supposed to be um Mm -hmm. 
But then we get this portal into her mind and she is, you know, as strong as Beatrice, I would argue, in some portrayals mm-hmm. of, of the character, you know. So, yeah, it's just interesting. Um, women, you're allowed, like, it's fine. <laughs> Be unlikable. Yeah. Yeah. That's an inspiring message. Yeah. Be unlikable. If that's who you are. Lean into it. The end by Leslie Nope. <laughs> the end by Leslie Nope. Yeah. I think that's a good a good note to 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 conclude on here. Yeah. Um yeah. Next month um, we're doing a live show. <laughs> Next well, month we are doing a live show. Not live yes. in person, but live on the computer. No. Live stream, yeah. So because wear um, your masks and social distance, <laughs> please. Yes, please do. Yeah, and what are we talking about on our live show, Aaron? Cinderella, Cinderella, night and day, Yay, Cinderella. Cinderella. Do the dishes, yes. do the mopping. <laughs> and um, I have taken it upon myself to watch the the two straight to video Disney <laughs> Cinderella sequels that are oh. on Disney Plus. I attempted to do this several days ago and made it through about 20 minutes of uh-huh. Cinderella 2 Dreams Come True before I was like, nope, can't do it. Yikes. Nope. Yeah. So you know what? I've heard that Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time, is actually enjoyable to watch. So I might okay. try that one. We'll see. I'll pledge to but also yeah. do this so you're not alone. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, going... we're going to talk about Cinderella, all of the, so, you know, like the Perot version, the uh, the Brothers Grimm version, and plus all of the myriad of world folklore traditions that have yeah. some version of this story. So I think this is going to be really exciting. And the Brandy version. And the, yes, and the Brandy version. Which for me. And Ever After. <laughs> For me, that is the version. There is no yeah. other oh, version. Yeah. Um, well, that one and Ever After are pretty much tied for me. Okay. That's like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's going to be a lot. It's going to be fun. I don't know. We didn't talk about it before if we're going to cosplay or not. But I mean, we could at least wear like a tiara or something. I don't know. Yeah, I have that unicorn tiara. Oh, I mean, we could oh, cosplay. Go. We could, we could throw something together. Should we wear our ball gowns? <laughs> yes. Or yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, we'll do some. We'll do something fun. Yeah. For our Zoom backgrounds. <laughs> because somehow yeah. it is August next month. Where has this year yes. gone? Oh my goodness! August eighth. August eighth is when we will be doing said live stream. At 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Indeed. Woo! On our our YouTube channel. Yay. So yeah, come join us. And during the live stream, um, we uh, will have like kind of a... We'll give you like a, a skinny on, on what um, some things that are coming in season three. Yeah. So, yeah. We'll give you a little a little preview of what's to come in season three, which is bananas to me that we're about to 
end season two. Yay! What? Okay. Yeah. So join us on August 8th. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be fun. I had such a fun time doing this episode. I think it's always fun to... I feel like every July we do a shake a spia, so that was fun. Thanks Shakespeare. for listening. <laughs> As always, Black Lives Matter. Just wanna, indeed. I think that that is wear like, your mask. You wear your masks. Be kind Wash to one hands. another. Let's take care fix of each other. World. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. We'll catch you next time. Bye, friends. Bye.